to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, I'm excited to share a recent conversation between Senior Assistant Dean of Admissions, Donna Clark, and Professor Melissa Thomas-Hunt. Melissa is the John Forbes Distinguished Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School of Business, and this conversation was recorded during a recent Women at Darden Office Hours event. Melissa Thomas-Hunt is the John Forbes Distinguished Professor of Business Administration at the Darden School of Business and Professor of Public Policy at the Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. She is the former head of Global Diversity and Belonging at Airbnb, where she led the strategy and execution of their global internal diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging programs and retains an external senior advisor role focusing on advancing connection and belonging research. Such important issues in today's society and for so many reasons. Immediately prior to her role at Airbnb, Melissa served as vice provost for inclusive excellence and professor of management in the Owens School of Management. There, Melissa was responsible for advancing equity, diversity, and inclusion across Vanderbilt's community of staff, faculty, and students. Before her time at Vanderbilt University, Melissa served as the Global Chief Diversity Officer and faculty at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, where she led the Women in Leadership Executive Education Program and was the founding academic director of the Brad Lab. She also held faculty appointments at Cornell University's Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management, where she was a member of the faculty for nine years. And she's also taught at Northwestern's Kellogg School, Washington University's Owen School of Business, and Stanford University's Graduate School of Business. For 25 years, Melissa has taught MBAs and executives leadership, team team dynamics, and negotiations and conducted research on the factors that unleash, leverage, and amplify the contributions made by individuals, particularly women, underrepresented individuals, and numerical minorities. Her publications are too numerous (laughs) to list today, but so impressive, and she was awarded the Darden-Wells Fargo Research Award in 2017. Melissa holds a master's and doctoral degrees from the Kellogg Graduate School of Management at Northwestern University and a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering from Princeton University. Melissa has been actively engaged in board service. She currently serves on the board of UKG Airbnb dot org and the Boys and Girls Club of Central Virginia. Welcome, Melissa, and welcome to all of our participants from literally all over the world. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Donna, for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're 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 thrilled to have you. And um, everyone, I have some questions for Melissa, but we are going to take be taking your questions as well. So please put them in the Q, the Q and A. And after I ask Melissa a few um, opening questions, we're definitely going to be toggling to to make sure we get your questions. Um, 
as well. Um, Melissa, I had some time this afternoon to watch several videos of yours that you've <laughs> okay. done. Um, and I understand you've been, you were born and raised in New York City. And one of the videos um, that was so compelling to me is that your parents observed when you were younger that you always sort of gravitated to the observation of people. I wonder if you could just you know, talk, talk about those early years and that sort of gravitational force to observe people so related to your passions. I, I think I was just always curious. I always wanted to learn more about who people were and where they came from. I think I was always drawn to the individuals who were quieter, maybe off to the side um, and just wanting to get to know them. Um, maybe the person who didn't go out for research and was buried in a book, but when you probe with some questions was absolutely fascinating and stretch my imagination. And so I think I, I've just always wanted to get to know more about people, particularly individuals who seemingly come from backgrounds that are different from mine, because I always discover that there's so much more commonality than I would have imagined. Yeah. So you had such a curiosity about people, it sounds like. I also read that you were really interested in math and science, and I was wondering if that's what led you to major in chemical engineering at Princeton. <laughs> there's, there's a little bit of a story there. So so, okay, good. When, when I was five years old, and I have a younger brother who's a little bit shy of three years younger than I am. And so um, when I was five years old, he got a big wheel. And neither my mother or my father wanted to venture to put it together. And at the age of five, I put the big wheel together. And that's like folks. <laughs> I mean, now kids are doing so much more sophisticated stuff, but it, you know, for them, it was a pretty big deal. And they're like, you need to be an engineer. I didn't know what an engineer was. Sure, at five years stuck, old. That stuck. And my parents were very, they were both educators and very pragmatic. And so because I continued on the path of taking a lot of math and science and I went to Bronx science. They said, you should be an engineer. In fact, you should really be an engineer. Um, and um, and so I, I ended up studying engineering. It was, um, I was actually a chemical engineer. As you mentioned, it was the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. I can imagine, uh, right. And, um, but there was a level of resilience and a notion that I can tackle almost anything having, having gotten through that degree. So yes, my parents put me on the path. Yeah, that's that's a great story. Um, not sure if I would want to tackle putting a big wheel together now. So it's a really impressive story. What led to the transition then to going on and getting your master's and doctoral degrees from Kellogg? Yeah. So um, at the time that I graduated um, or was getting ready to graduate from college um, and I went, the engineering program at Princeton was very theoretical. Um, and so I applied for engineering jobs. Um, and, you know, one of the, you know, I had a job offer from Procter & Gamble, which was like a coveted job to do manufacturing management. But I have to be honest, I was on the younger side um, as a graduate and I would have been managing a workforce to maybe three times my age that had vast experience. And I felt like I had the theoretical underpinnings, but not the applied. So I was a little bit intimidated by that. I had the opportunity to interview for a job as a marketing rep at IBM, and they were looking to make their sales force more technical. So they wanted to hire more engineers. And I had a little business on the side while I um, was in college, uh, the holiday wreath agency and also um, some care packages. And so they liked that business side and they decided that they, you know, paired with my engineering skills would hire me to be a marketing rep. And so I came back to New York City, which was home, and I was in New York Financial on a large account team supporting what they then called major money center banks. So that dates me a little bit. 
<laughs> and so I was there and I actually, I was a sales rep. So I did a lot of negotiating, not really with my with my customers, but actually internally to the organization to make sure I could bring them cutting edge software um, and, and, and support. And I got really interested in negotiating, started understanding that it was a field that you could study, started taking some part-time classes um, in New York City, and then decided that I was going to apply because I really wanted to jump fully into it and study it. I, you know, and it marries with the, I've always been a student of people Yes. So studying negotiations at people, the people side of business. Um, that's what took me to Northwestern to get my PhD. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And then um, Af, can you kind of bring us up, up to speed a little bit on after your doctoral program? I know your recent history and have you know studied that at Airbnb and Owen and Darden and, and so on and so forth. But what happened right after um Grad your school. doctoral program. Yeah. So I um, I went to Northwestern and it really was an epicenter of research and teaching on negotiations. Um, so I got to study with a lot of great faculty um, and to really hone my, my research acumen as well. Um, and so um, I went off and my first job as an assistant professor was at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, and, uh, and so there I taught um, introductory organization behavior, but I also taught negotiations. Um, and I was there and, and you know, uh, having a, a wonderful time as a new assistant professor. It's also where I had my first child. Um, and um, at some point, uh, I was given the opportunity to visit at Stanford. They needed someone to teach negotiations and um, our life was configured in a way that we could pick up and do that. What I didn't realize was that the signal value was that I was potentially movable. And so some colleagues at Cornell reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in a full-time position at Cornell. So we went out to the West Coast for about three months. I taught in 2000, um, in 2000. And then we made our way back to the East Coast and moved to Ithaca, New York. And I joined the faculty at the Johnson School. And I was on the faculty there for nine years. And my wow. other kids were born while I was there. Oh, wow. What a story. You know, recently, Darden hosted a women's summit in Roslyn. And the theme was the great reinvention. And yes. just uh, what an amazing story of your willingness to pivot and move. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just it fits in with that theme so well. <laughs> We, you know, many academics move around um, because, you know, when there's a great opportunity to to teach wonderful students and to have great colleagues and resources to you know, to do research, um, you often take that opportunity. I think for me, the great pivot, I never anticipated going back into industry after I left IBM and became an academic. So for me, the great pivot and the great reinvention actually was when I made the jump to go to Airbnb. Um, yeah. Well, can can we talk about that transition? Sure. Sure. For a little Absolutely. while. Yeah. Let's like I would like to go with that. Okay. Can you elaborate on that transition and what prompted what yeah. um, pr prompted that move? So at the time, I was actually working at the university level at Vanderbilt, and I was doing work in the provost office advancing um, inclusive excellence um, and enjoying it a great deal. I had the opportunity. I was in the role as in the inaugural vice provost, and I got to roll up my sleeves and work hand in hand with students, faculty, and, and staff. Um, and then one day, after I had been doing it for a while, I got a LinkedIn message. <laughs> 
And the LinkedIn message was from someone I knew, but not particularly well. Like our circles yeah. were kind of overlapping. And she said, I'm at Airbnb. I, I didn't know that. She said, I'm at Airbnb and we've been looking for someone to head up global diversity and belonging. And we know you're a faculty member and an academic administrator, but we just thought maybe you would talk to us. And so I thought, that's really odd. Like in your, my LinkedIn to get this message. And I thought, well, I've been a guest on Airbnb for about five or six years. I've I've had positive experiences, um, but I've never actually thought about them as a company. Right? Yeah. I thought about my interface. And right. because I'm a student of organizations, wouldn't it be fun just to learn more about them as a company? Sure. And yeah. And so I st- I started having a series of conversations first with the person who was the chief people officer officer, they call it the VP of employee experience, who ultimately became my boss. Um, and then with many of the executives who were there, and ultimately with the CEO, um, we had um, initially a face-to-face, um, very poignant conversation. Um, one of my questions for him was, why did you pick belonging um, as the, the, the mission of Airbnb? And he talked very poignantly about you know, times where he didn't feel like he belonged and why it was so important. Mm. Um, But he still wasn't sold on me. He wasn't convinced. And so um, about two months later, I had another um, 90 minute, it was then a WebEx call and it was robust dialogue, kind of arguing back and forth because he wanted to know, what are you going to do in your first 90 days? Are you going to go outside of the US, in the US? You know, and so we went back and forth and the and he asked me, you know, what are the big things you would do? And for me, when you're advancing diversity and belonging, it's really about relationships. It's really mm-hmm. about being curious about other individuals. It's about being perspective taking. And so we had that conversation, but I thought he was going to be left thinking I wasn't global enough, which I thought was really unfortunate because for me, um, you know, you have to consider the global arena if you're thinking about you know diversity and diverse perspectives and individuals from different walks of life, um, and two, that he was going to think that my focus on relationships was a little bit mundane, but apparently he liked arguing with me. <laughs> yeah, I can see where that would be, com- you know, compelling. Sure. And so um, he decided that I would be a good partner, and um, about a month later, I joined the executive team at Airbnb and started what was a wild ride. Um, I knew they were. I was captivated captivated by the fact that they had a mission of belonging. So much of the work that I had been doing was trying to figure out in different organizations, mostly in universities, how could I mitigate the differences in the experience of belonging that different groups had and to have a company that had it front and center, but didn't know how to actually, they had done lots on the platform. They had some very public woes around that, but actually they hadn't spent a whole lot of time internally looking at their employee base. And Uh, I thought I could help them with that. Right commitment there. Can you talk a little bit about some of the steps that you took um, sure. there to help enhance belonging or um, that'd Absolutely. be great. Absolutely. So the first thing I did is I got on a lot of planes um, this <laughs> back in 2019 because I wanted to honor my commitment that I was that I was really there for all of the employees around the world, and so I, you know, I was in um, Singapore twice within a few months. I was in the EMEA region. I was really I was having individual meetings, group meetings. Um, we had all sorts of inputs because the other thing that I didn't know when I joined was that. 
um, the CEO, Brian, had made some commitments to the to the company about advancing diversity and belonging, and that my initials were next to those commitments. Oh, and wow. So, and that um, was a surprise to you? It was a surprise to me. Yeah, it was wow. A to me. The immediacy of it. And actually, it was a wind at my back because everyone knew he had made the commitment. So when I showed up and wanted to ask questions and wanted to know more, they knew it was with the, the guidance you know, of the CEO. And so I see great yeah. entree into right. it. Um, and I, you know, I spoke to people at all levels and all facets of the company because what I wanted to understand was what was going well. And in a company right. where belonging is the mission, people are drawn to that, but not everyone was having the same experience. So I wanted to understand what were the friction points, like where were the places either on entry or in experiences in, 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 in getting promoted or evaluated or in stretch opportunities, where was there a divergence or the way in which people talked to one another or how they talked about world events. And so it was lots of conversations because you have to get sort of a right. perspective on that. And so traveling around, lots of conversations, I led a task force um, and we looked at learning opportunities and we looked at what, you know, opportunities there were in the talent space and talent management and design and the cultural fabric, what the employee resource groups were doing and how they could be better supported. Um, and we also looked at our hiring and recruiting practices, which was a longer journey, but ultimately a, a fairly successful one. Wow. So substantive. And what were some of the common themes that you found? I mean, really interesting because you're on a plane in all these different locations and there were there prominent themes that you discovered? So it's interesting. So if we take in, in taking a global perspective, there were some there were some themes, particularly around divergences and belonging. So globally, and this is not unique to, to Airbnb, but globally, women were having a different experience than mm. you know, their male identifying um, colleagues were. Um, so that was one global theme. We also found that the, the LGBTQI plus community around the globe in varying degrees were, were having a different experience. And sometimes that experience was a function of feeling very valued within the, the wall, literally the walls of Airbnb at that time. But that when they stepped out into the broader society or community, they, they couldn't be as free. And that was in and of itself constraining. Right. Um, we also found members of the, who identifies the disability community community. Um, also, and that was that was a journey that I pushed really hard on, mm-hmm. um, understanding, even including, you know, um, not just physical disability, but also right. diversity and, and think and considering that. And then the last category was the category of caregivers and parents. Oh, uh, wonderful. Particularly um, the teams in, in Airbnb are not geographically bounded. So you could be on a team with anyone in the world. And Honestly, particularly at that time, before the company was largely remote, it was very toggled to San Francisco. And so if you're in a team in Singapore, you could be getting up in the middle of the night repeatedly and then having to take your kids to school early in the morning. And what I heard from employees was, we understand we're in a, you know, a U.S. California-centric place, but we'd love for our colleagues to at least acknowledge the contortions that we do to right. show up for them, right? And so these are stories about understanding people's situations, right? Yeah. Colleagues as people um, and seeing their humanity and then trying to figure out how do you solve for it. Part of it is awareness and then a motivation to actually um, have your colleagues feel cared for. Yeah, amazing. What are some of the... Um, things that you're most proud of, if, you know, during your time at Airbnb? Um, I think that I'm, one of the things that I'm most proud about is that 
my team, and I actually had two teams, I had people analytics, and I had the diversity and belonging team, both of those teams, in particular, diversity and belonging was was seen as a safe place, it was seen as a place where people could come. And if they were having challenges, um, beyond what they could just take to talent, that we were thought partners that we could provide resources that we could provide coaching and guidance. Um, And I'm really proud because it was important that we were a trusted entity, and we worked really hard to cultivate that. I'm also really proud because there are a lot of things that we put in place. Um, we were able to institute diversity goals, um, both broadly for the company, but also for the executive and board and aggregate. We were also able to task um, all of the executives with having diversity and belonging plans. And we weren't prescriptive about what needed to be in there because we recognized that each of their organizations needed to have its own organic and tailored mm-hmm. version. But that put the accountability on the executives to actually determine how they were, you know, what were going to be the programs that they put forth. Um, There was a revamp to hiring processes in tech. There are a host of things that we did. um, And I think we really re-energized the employee resource groups so that they felt that they could help create the culture and create a culture that was representative of the vast array of individuals who were present. Amazing. When you transitioned, I was going to ask you um, about what led you to come back to Darden, and we'll come back to that in a minute because I'm really curious. But I mean, this is such rich experience and so many insights. Can you talk a little bit about the transferability of um, what you learned to Airbnb and what you were able to accomplish that and um, how you've brought that into the Darden culture? <laughs> I, it, there's a little bit of like, how did I bring the Darden culture into Airbnb? Right? Okay, okay, great. Well, you, and you go for that too. <laughs> um, and 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 obviously, in, in, uh, bringing bringing back what I experienced at Airbnb. Certainly, I have a, a new focus. Uh, but I say, but I say, bringing from from Darden to Airbnb, um, because when I first got to Airbnb, you know, people were like, here's here's this faculty member, this academic, right? And tech is pretty picky about who they let in. Interesting. And and so um, I knew that the right answer when people said, like, how is tech different? Like, I had to have a way, I had to say, like, it's so different. (laughs) It's In terms of the work that I was doing, which is really about people and conversations and seeing people and understanding how they're being treated and figuring out the source of it, it was actually really similar, right? So I had done a lot of work at Belonging, at Darden and Vanderbilt and other places, really asking questions building relationships, building trust. And those were the same skills that I leveraged when I went to Airbnb. I had, um, much like at Darden, where I had the opportunity to share that with my colleagues, because I was sitting on the executive team, I was able to give you know, my executive colleagues, a perspective that they often didn't get um, because there's so much distance between them and they're so busy and have so many top of mind things. Um, but I was able to to close some of those, um, some of those gaps. Um, in terms of, you know, bringing things back from Airbnb, I just think I have a much richer perspective of tech. Um, yeah. One, I had to learn the language of tech, right? Because yeah. Seems as credible. Uh, if you don't speak the language, then people don't think that you could possibly help them in any way. And so my family would joke with me <laughs> when they would talk to me, and they're like, "Oh, you're speaking tech speak now. Oh. <laughs> Translate for us." <laughs> and even now that I'm back at Darden, there are times around with my colleagues, and they're like. <laughs> but it's seemingly the MBA students appreciate it. Yeah. So, uh, 
I just learned a lot more about focus. I learned a lot more about the hospitality industry, about tech, about um, like, you know, like all of the things that go into using the the applications that we use and um, the software engineering team and the, the nuanced and expert, you know, um, specialties that they have and what a product manager is and what a product manager really does. And um, so uh, I, I, and I get to bring all of that richness back. And I also have a much richer understanding of how initiatives move forward, the role of communications. If you want to change a culture, how do you leverage your internal communications team? How do you support your executives and your leaders? Um, so much in the realm of diversity and belonging is people want to be on board, but they don't know the right thing to say. And they're fearful they're going to say the wrong thing. But if you have experts who are literally saying, here's what you can say, and you can say it in your all hands, and you can say it in your email communication, and then there's a confidence that gets built and there's a cascading throughout the culture so that you're both increasing the comfort level of yeah. leaders and also cascading and changing the culture. Um, Melissa, when I um, came back to Jarden in 2017, I remember having a memory right now as you're speaking um, with talking to our dean who was reeling over the, the loss of Melissa Thomas Hunt and <laughs> in many conversations expressed to me the extent to which he wanted to get Melissa Thomas Hunt back to Darden. I, I remember hearing about you so much. Can you talk about that transition back to Darden? What precipitated that and led, led you to come back to Darden? I, I absolutely can. Um, so I, um, I loved my time at Darden. I really did. And I, I thoroughly enjoyed working with Scott. We got to do so much stuff together. Um, and I, um, while I was at Airbnb, um, I loved learning a new environment. It was intellectually stimulating. I thought that I was adding value, um, you know, and wasn't enjoying it. A pandemic hit and was a hospitality travel company. And oh. that, um, that was really hard. The bottom fell out and yeah. the executive team was sitting on Zoom six days a week, making some really hard decisions. We right. lost 1,900 people. Wow. It was unprecedented. Um, and then literally weeks after doing that um, at a company where people cared deeply about one another and hadn't seen one another, then we found ourselves in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Murder, uh, yeah. My team was sort of holding holding down and supporting on all of, on all of those dimensions um, and still felt lots and lots of, of, of value um, that we were delivering. I think there come times where you have to take stock of the entirety of life. And I had some um, some family configurations and, you know, my parents who were in New York City. Um, and um, during the pandemic, we actually moved back to the East Coast to be closer to them. Um, but the life of an executive is truly 24-7. Right. Um, and, you know, that coupled with the sense that I had this nagging sense that, you know, I'm, a, I'm truly an academic. And what I saw, and this is not specific to Airbnb by any stretch of the imagination, is that the business world in general could use more sophisticated managers and leaders who were trained to have the difficult conversations, to mm -hmm. look for the best in their people, to really commit to developing them, um, to not thinking that it's just waving a magic wand. Right. And as I sat back, I thought, like, I know a place 
that does an excellent job of developing managers and leaders. Mm. And now with this more fine-grained and nuanced understanding of what's really needed, I just thought I could come back and be so much more effective right. the funnel and help to build in and develop leaders and managers who are committed to making the world a much better place. And I, yeah. wanted, I wanted to be part of that. So the funny story is that um, in June of 2020, while I was still working for Airbnb and I was remote, my family made the decision we were moving back to the East Coast, specifically to Charlottesville. Um, my husband and my two older children traveled with our dogs across country in a car, and my youngest and I flew back. When I landed at the Charlottesville airport and turned on my phone, my first message was from Scott Beardsley. <laughs> and it, he was like, how are you doing? <laughs> and I said, are you tracking me? Because I just landed in Charlottesville because we've moved back. And that was the start of a conversation. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That it, Talk about serendipity. Yeah. Yeah. That wow, that's 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 serendipity. Oh, that's amazing! I love. I'm so glad you shared that story. And and so important that our MBAs learn to lead diverse organizations and to do so in an inclusive way, where people do feel a, a sense of belonging. And I know it's so important to Darden to cultivate those skills. How do you see DEI initiatives or issues evolving at Darden? Yeah, I think um, so. So between my my two stints at Darden, I think that there's much more fluency and commitment to really creating an environment um, in which, you know, the vast array of students can belong. I think within any organization, it's always a journey and Anytime an organization says that we're there, they're absolutely not there and they're going to roll back. So, you know, you know, we we are on a journey and that's super important. And there's awareness. We have an incredibly diverse array of MBA students from all walks of life and around the globe who are incredibly smart and hardworking and accomplished leaders already. And that just makes for a tapestry um, that is rich for learning. And I think the thing that, you know, anyone who is getting their MBA or contemplating um, getting an MBA has to realize that this is really a global playing field. And you want to be someplace where you're going to have the opportunity to understand the nuances of ge different geopolitical regions, of different cultural contexts. And what better than to place yourself, you know, somewhere where you're going to have that type of, of diversity. And so I think we have to continue to, you know, ask the questions about like, what's the experience that someone's having? How can we make it better? And if we continue asking those questions, then, then we'll be able to solve for it and continue to, you know, for everyone to be able to leverage the phenomenal pedagogy in the yeah. dark classroom. I think I've been in a number of business schools um, and, it, re it really is differentiated. The student-centered learning, the notion that you're being prepared so that when you get dropped back in the workforce, there are ambiguous and thorny problems and you are able to bring to bear multiple lenses because there's no one problem that's solely a finance problem. And there's right. no problem that's an accounting problem or a marketing problem that's not a people problem also. Right. And so the great thing about the Darden classroom is that you get to figure out, you know, what is the root cause? Um, what, you know, how do I need, what are all the tools that I need to bring to bear? And that's really a differentiator of the students that graduate from our program. Right. I'm going to um, switch gears. There's some really good questions coming in the Q&A. And one is, what classes do you teach at Darden under the leadership and organizational behavior area? 
Yes. So I just finished teaching the introductory leadership and organizations class called the LO Core. Um, I taught uh, 140 of my new best friends across two sections, actually down from the 213 that I taught a year ago because I taught three sections. So I teach smokes. Yeah. (laughs) core class. Um, And then I also, um, historically, the class that I've taught the most at Darden is negotiations. Okay. Um, Yes. (laughs) Oh, great. One one of the questions I'm seeing in the chat is, did you ever experience unconscious bias at Airbnb? If yes, where did it occur? Um, and when you work through diversity, were how, how did you take note of 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 that? Um, yeah. So I mean, so here's the thing, right? I I have done research on unconscious bias. I have done lots of reading on it. Unconscious bias, um, it it's everywhere. Part of it is, you know, there are heuristics that, you know, over time we have developed as shortcuts, you know, sometimes for safety, but the problem is when our unconscious biases don't actually map onto true base rates, when they're actually not representative of the environment, when we take a shortcut based upon the way someone looks, how we perceive them, um, and particularly when we then make decisions or, or engage in ways that are detrimental to the individual. So part of it is we we are human beings and part of the way we are wired is to take shortcuts and what we have to do is work against that we have to mm, you know such a good point or question our assumptions and so the question is so i am a middle-aged black woman <laughs> and the, when when people meet me depending upon their lived experience there are all sorts of things that can go through their minds right so for me to like so of course i've been subject to unconscious bias but it's really about um how do i help other people both who are on the receiving end of it like how do i help them navigate um in their careers um and how do i help individuals be motivated to overcome their biases. And part of that motivation is bringing awareness, but also um, bringing tools and learning and a pathway for them to be more expansive in their thinking. Mm, Great answer. Thank you so much. There's a question from Claudia um, who is asking about what diversity and inclusion initiatives has Darden taken in, in recent years to promote um, women and Hispanic minorities representation in business. Um, and, and, and maybe maybe you can just speak about that. It doesn't have to be Darden specific, but more broadly. I know um, having done some research about you, you have a lot of expertise on um, women as individuals in the workplace. Yeah. Well, you know, actually right now, my colleague, Laura Morgan Roberts, is teaching in um, what we call affectionately the will program, the women in leadership program. And so at Darden, um, and there was just recently the women's summit, which you mentioned, Donna, there has really been a fine point over the years in recognizing. Um, and I think th- this is the way Darden would see it. You know, if you are a manager, a leader, if you're in an organization and you, you know, you have um, things that you need to develop, why would you ever want to do it with less than the full human capital at your disposal? Um, and so it's not a, nice to have. It's a um, making sure that you have the most talented students, the most talented workforce. And in doing so, that means that you have to make sure that you have strong representation from women. And so there are all sorts of ways. GWIB is one of the strongest organizations. There's lots of mentorship. Um, They have um, ally, you know, um, 
men allies who are participating. Um, it's it's really phenomenal the things that they have done. And I think the faculty is increasingly aware in the classroom of how you have to lead an inclusive classroom so that all voices are heard and encouraged and invited, specifically in the realm of Hispanic, Latina, Latina, Latine. Um, the world, the world actually needs to wake up to just the, the raw demographics. Um, it's a vibrant uh, population of talented individuals who are um, who are prosperous and highly motivated. And again, the question is, why would we not set the table um, and invite and accelerate um, individuals to bring their full talented array? Um, and organizations, companies are demanding it. And so absolutely, it's, it's the thing that enriches our environment, but it's also absolutely necessary. It's table stakes. Thank you. Um, just as an aside, there is a, uh, a note in a Q&A from an, a Darden alum, Laura Curran, who is saying she would love to host you for an event in Orange County, Newport Beach, California. So <laughs> you, you, among the questions you have. Uh, <laughs> Sounds great. I look forward to an, an invitation <laughs> as well. Um, there's a question from Elizabeth that said, you've been at such incredible institutions. Curious to know what you feel separates um, the Darden program in terms of, you know, how MBA students are pre prepared to show up in the workforce with a DEI lens. Yeah. So when I arrived at Darden in 2009, I knew that it was uh a pedagogy that was driven by case method, which we now really characterize as student center. But I don't think I understood the impact of that. I thought, you know, I teach negotiations, I've taught cases. I didn't understand what truly happened in the classroom. And what happens in the classroom is that it's a facilitated conversation with, you know, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 70 um, individuals. And there's a lot of pedagogy and deliberate coordination with the faculty teaching team. But what we're teaching you is to take very ambiguous, diffuse information and to make sense of it. And um, in leadership and organizations in particular, we talk about the leadership point of view, which means that we're asking you to see what's going on. What are the problems here? And then with the frameworks and the conversations that we have, understanding like, how did it arise? And then going on to acting. What are you actually going to do? What's the specific action you're going to take? So we do a lot of role plays in class because saying what one should do and actually doing it are very different things. And what we want is for you day one, and even in your internships, to be absolutely prepared to engage. And when you talk to companies, the differentiating thing that they say about Darden alums is that they are ready, even in their internships, to, to demonstrate their stories of Darden interns saving companies money being able to distill really complex situations, um, they're ready to go. And part of that is just the case method and, yep. and the structure that we impose. Yeah, I hear that, that feedback all the time too. Um, what are some of your favorite cases that you teach regularly or have worked on? So I'm going to tell you that one of my favorite cases is called Taryn Swan. And it's about Taryn Swan, who's a real person um, who actually graduated from HBS. We'll say that quietly. Um, 
and worked for Nickelodeon. And she is tasked with um, leading up an initiative for Nickelodeon in Latin America. And it's actually a relatively old case, um, but it's a favorite of mine because it's one of the earliest where you see um, a protagonist um, who's non-white, where you see a protagonist who's a woman who has real business responsibility. But there are also some other things about it. Um, So Taryn, as it turns out, is pregnant. And so she's not going to be able to actually travel to the same location as her team. She's going to actually lead them remotely. And so the questions that we ask about, you know, um, is it appropriate? How should you do this? I mean, they're kind of antiquated given what they've all been through, but they're leading edge and really, um, you know, probing questions at that time. But it represent it was a first in so many dimensions, and she was such a strong leader and fostered such a strong team that I love it. We really don't teach it that much anymore, but um, it leaves a lasting impression. Other cases are some of the negotiation cases that I've written. It's all experiential, and so we really want to transport students into the place where they're trying to make the hard decisions, they're trying to negotiate with others, and then they get to unpack those experiences by seeing how others differentially um, uh, engage. So, you know, those are some of the ones that, yeah. you know, that, that, that I that I love, but there are many wonderful, wonderful cases. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. From many prospective students, they have not yet experienced the case method. So for them to hear from you, some of the cases you're passionate about, I think uh, really helps, you know, give it some color. Um, you mentioned earlier in the webinar, you, in addition to having such an accomplished and impressive career, you also have a family, you have parents, um, you have three children. I know we have in common that both of our um, sons, well, mine graduated from Middlebury. Yours is a freshman, if I remember correctly, right. at Middlebury. Do you have any pearls of wisdom um, for people who are maybe, um, you know, embarking on uh, executive careers and hoping to have a family. Any pearls of wisdom that um, have, have been helpful to you as you have balanced all of that? <laughs> you know, it's funny, Donna, that you say balanced because I really think of it more, and this was not my analogy, it was someone else's, as a kaleidoscope. And so for those of you who are familiar with the kaleidoscope yeah. and like the colors come in, the shapes come in at different points in time, depending how you twist it, things are foregrounded and then mm-hmm. they appear into the background. And I think if we think about our careers and our personal lives as more of kaleidoscopes and that at sometimes some things are going to be in the foreground and at other times they're going to take a back seat. Um, you know, there were times and I was I was joking with some of my um, junior, my colleagues, and I was saying that there was a time where I just couldn't do any work on weekends because I had three little kids, and yeah. we were you know traipsing around soccer fields and gymnastics and whatever the case may be, and that that was the time with them. And so um, I had a more finite time in which to get work done. Which mm-hmm. you know, the reality is, I had fewer hours, and so there there was less that I, that I could get, that I could, that I chose to get done. Um, but now, you know, my youngest is 18 and a, and a freshman in college and my, you know, one's in law school and the other one's also in college. And so my weekends end up being a hugely productive time. Um, and I can reapportion time during the week to support others, to, um, you know, for my teaching, um, as well, uh, uh, you know, as doing other things. And so, 
it's um, and so, you know, and also supporting supporting my my parents and other members. So I think the first thing is to be really realistic about what you want from your life. Like, what are the things that energize you? And then to figure out, like, do you need everything at once? Can this be staged? What are the things that you need to do now? Like, and sometimes there are skill sets that you want to build now, and then recognize that there are going to be times where you need to invest in other things and to be really honest and conversations about that um, and to think about how do you want to design how do you want to design your life and your career that doesn't mean you're going to be able to implement it immediately but if you can envision it then you can begin to put those pieces together and talk to other people that you see who you think of as models and ask them you know how did they did it how did they do it it's um as a you know working professional I can't do everything. So sometimes, you know, I've had the luxury of being able to outsource certain things um, and other things that were just near and dear to me. I didn't outsource. I tended to be the one in the family who liked to coach our kids on their, their relationships with their friends. Not surprisingly, because I'm the right person. Like right. that was, that was my thing. And I want, and I wanted to spend time doing hard math problems, but I didn't need to be the person who was doing the more rudimentary things. There were other people who could help. And I wanted to know with each of my three kids, like, when did they want me to show up? Like, what was the important thing? Our youngest loves to have his family members watch him play sports. <laughs> and so we now journey throughout New England. But not all of my kids feel that way. They all, and so recognizing that there's never one solution across the board and never one solution that's going to work across time, it's going to be very varied. I, I recall being at a couple of meetings with you recently where you've been road tripping a lot to up to Middlebury or other colleges where your son is playing. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, can we talk just a little bit about Charlottesville? Can you tell our participants about some of your favorite things about Charlottesville? Absolutely. You know, I, so when I think about Charlottesville, so one, I'll say it's the place that in the depths of the pandemic, we chose to come back to as a family. Mm -hmm. um, we have, you know, strong relationships that we've built, and it's actually a place that we feel very safe. We feel that there are people who would help us if we needed help, um, and it it was a source of comfort. And so we left San Francisco to come to come back here. But I'll say that um, the thing that never gets old, and and certainly for a while wasn't doing a lot of this, but flying into Charlottesville is absolutely spectacular. It no is. What time of year it is. To see the Blue Ridge Mountains, to look down, to see UVA campus and um, and all that is there. There is something that is calming and renewing. Um, and I think it's symbolic of the fact that there are just lots of, there's lots of natural beauty. And so some people may say, well, I'm not a hiker. I'm not a hiker, <laughs> right? But even just driving on the highways in the area is absolutely beautiful, no matter what time of year it is. I agree with you. And so it, it, it presents a pause and a calm. And that's one of the things that I that I absolutely love about Charlottesville. Yeah, that's great. Um, I, I, I love that too. And I also love the restaurant scene. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the restaurant, there's music, there's theater, um, also all sorts of things. Absolutely. Um, what are some things that you do? Um, what, there's a question in the chat about sort of outside of work interests, hobbies uh, in, in your free time. <laughs> yeah, in my free time. That, that's, that's always hard. But here's the thing, um, which I think uh, there are some things that I, that I do in my free time or I create free time to do some things. 
I do spend a lot of time working, but on a lot of varied things and a lot of, and with a lot of people that I enjoy and that I care about. And so right. for me, being useful is the most important thing to me. And if I'm right. being useful, then I feel very rewarded. Um, I, um, I have a water jogging habit, um, which, uh, so I have a, a knee situation, which is not great, but I'm able to water jog and that's a source of exercise, but also just a, uh, a source of um, restoration. There are times where I am not as good, like when I'm teaching in the core. And so I'm getting back into that routine, but I do water jog. I love doing puzzles. I would love to do puzzles even more than I do now. Um, I love spending time with my spouse and I love visiting my children um, and just enjoying time with friends. Those are, uh, those are yeah. some of the things. And now that travel is coming back, I love to travel, but of course, um, have been grounded like many of us. Right, right. Um, just uh, for so people to know, Darden, right in front of Darden is a North Grounds Recreation Center. It's the second biggest gym um, at the University of Virginia. And I go to aqua jogging on Mondays and Wednesday nights. There's a class. So I'm, I'm, I'm discovering all these things that we have in common. Okay. I'm going to go back to the, um, the chat and take some other. Oh, okay. There's a couple questions in here. You teach negotiations. Um, and this may be a tough question to answer in a nutshell, but there seems to be an interest in a couple of pearls of wisdom about negotiations. Yeah, sure. Oh, so just like, what are my pearl? What are my pearls of wisdom? Um, so one, um, be aware that you should negotiate. Um, negotiating yeah, and that's huge. It is. It is so huge. <laughs> and it's not just sitting down across the table from someone. Um, I tend to think of negotiation as being, you know, anytime two or more people decide what they're going to give and take in a relationship. That's a negotiation. And so most of my daily endeavors are, are negotiations of sorts. And so what becomes important is understanding what I'm, what I would ideally like to get out of a situation, whether we're problem solving, working a project um, or, and what someone else might want to get out of it as well. And so understanding what their interests are. So that means asking lots of questions and also being, being willing to share a little bit about what your objectives are and what, what you find and what you should be open to the fact is we don't actually all care equally about the same issues. And so you have the opportunity to try and get what you want on things you care more about and maybe make some concessions on things that you care less about. And so even when our preferences are opposing, we may not care equally about those issues. And so there's an opportunity to create some value and some goodwill um, in, in having that awareness. But it starts with building a relationship, gathering information, um, and being open to the possibility that there are things that you don't know about the other party and you hope to figure it out. Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that. And everybody, if you come to Jarden, you want to take Melissa's um, negotiations class for sure. Um, well, our time is coming to an end. Thank you so much for participating in the webinar. I so enjoyed getting to know more about you and watching your videos and listening to uh, all that you had to share today. And thank you again to all of the participants who have tuned in from around the world. Uh, I see somebody now from Budapest. Um, wow. Really, really appreciate your participation and for many of you staying up very late on the other side of the globe too. Melissa, thank you so much. Oh, and you, everybody have a good afternoon and evening. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Thank oh, I so enjoyed it. Bye-bye. 
And that was a conversation between Senior Assistant Dean of Admissions Donna Clark and Professor Melissa Thomas-Hunt from our ongoing Women at Darden Office Hour series. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.